There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikariska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I'm joined once again by Mark Satov. He's a business strategy expert and the founder of Satov Consultants. He comes to the table with more than 20 years of experience and is going to help us find solutions and ideas for businesses dealing with the pandemic. Welcome back, Mark. Great to be back again. I'm really looking forward to the topics today. Lots of interesting stuff to discuss. Yeah, definitely. And before we get into that, I do want to encourage our audience to get involved in the conversation. You can do that by emailing me any questions, comments, or feedback that you have about the show to alicja at yahoofinance.com. That's alicia at yahoofinance.com. Now, Mark, let's kick off the show the way we always do, and that's by digging into the top stories of the day. And I want to talk about airlines, specifically WestJet. They came out with some big changes yesterday on Wednesday that they are going to implement. It includes consolidating their call center in Alberta. They are going to uh, contract out airport operations at all of their Canadian airports, with the exception of Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and Toronto. And they're also reducing headcount. Now, this means a permanent reduction of 3,333 jobs. It's pretty remarkable when you look at where the airline was like where the airline was at pre-pandemic. They had 14,000 people on staff. Today they have 4,500. What what do you make of this decision in the news coming from WestJet? Well, I don't think they have much choice. I mean, the airline the airplanes are not flying. They're not going to be flying to a significant degree for a long time. Uh, I think that it's interesting to watch business uh, and businesses like this because they are in the eye of the storm, as we say, uh, for the pandemic, because uh, they just, you know, there's just so many regulations and restrictions around flying and will be for a while. And then and then after those are lifted, you're going to have more demand issues. And so uh, the way I think about it is, um, you know, they, first of all, they're a very good airline. And I, I start to think about it in terms of, you know, Onyx buying the airline. And I sort of, you know, I've always been a big fan of WestJet. I love the service experience. I love the culture. And I think it was generally a good buy. And I think there's further opportunity for upside. Uh, and I just think it was bad timing. But that's not a that's not a mistake because it's not like anybody predicted this with any precision. So I think the other thing is, you know, you need to look at it and say, okay, well, what are they going to do? Because they essentially are the ones who are going to be responsible for pumping money back in. And so you look at it, it's actually a pretty sizable percentage of their portfolio. I think it was a $5 billion acquisition, and I think they have $31 billion now in uh, assets under management. So it's actually pretty significant for them. Uh, the write-down uh, is pretty significant for them of value. I don't remember uh, if they've actually taken it or what it was. But the other thing to look at is, you know, so far they've not had to cut that many people because the government has been helping, just like they've been helping for lots of businesses. And the trick is, as we've talked about with other businesses, you know, as they wean themselves off government support, demand comes back. 
And so we've talked about with other businesses, you know, are you able to get demand back and roughly the same timing as government is, is, is taking their support down? I think with WestJet and Air Canada, of course, uh, that is not going to happen without a bailout. So I think whenever you talk about the yeah. airlines, you sort of say, of course, they have to make more cuts because there's just no way they can survive. Uh, without doing that to a significant degree, again, once the government assistance is over. Uh, and then the big question is, once the government assistance is over that everybody is getting, are they going to get a special type of government assistance? And I don't think we know. I, it's interesting, we've not heard too much scuttlebutt about that in the media in the last few weeks. No, I remember <laughs> through March and April, really waiting for the airline announcement to see if there was one, because that was one that um, the prime minister was being asked every single day. Um, I definitely think that this means that WestJet is, they're kind of starting to, you can see it, position themselves to be lobbying the government um, in a much more aggressive way to get some help. Um, WestJet's CEO, Ed Sims, he said in in his uh, statement that was released yesterday that this was a difficult but essential decision to, quote, future-proof the business. Um, do you think this is going to these these cuts and um, I guess the lobbying, is that going to help them going forward once demand starts to return? Well, everything's a negotiation, right? And so what I don't know, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, airlines have this thing where they haven't given customers back all their money for flights that are not. Uh, that, that are not being taken. And I, I'm pretty sure you don't want to get deep into that again uh, because it was a pretty emotional discussion. We know where you stand. I think, I think <laughs> I was pretty clear. Uh, and on this one, the question is, you know, are they going to hold out those jobs as part of the bailout and sort of say, okay, well, you know, if you give me some money, you're going to have a good news story here because I'm going to be able to bring back some of the jobs. By the way, I think that there was strong rationale to wait for bailout decisions. We saw in Europe, the bailout decisions came earlier, but I think the rationale for waiting is they wanted to actually have a better, I'll say better visibility to when uh, demand was going to come back or when, the, you know, how sustainable the airlines were going to be without the bailout until you actually know, you know, how much they're going to be flying and when they're going to be flying, you don't really know how much money they need. So mm -hmm. I don't think we have the precision now that we need to make a decision. If, you know, if we're in government, we sort of say, okay, well, how much money do you need? I don't think the airlines could say, for sure. Uh, but I think that's why it's interesting that you look at, I think the deal in Germany was an equity deal. And so it was not a, a pure bailout where we're giving you money and, you know, pay it back when you can, but we're actually buying an equity stake based on the valuation that we see. And the valuation is a forward looking valuation. So, you know, there may be an interim period, but it's a forward looking valuation. So I, I, mm -hmm. I think, I think we don't know yet what's going to happen uh, for bailout. And I think that regardless of whether this is to help them negotiate or just to survive, I think they had to do it. Yeah. And even as you mentioned, the, the bailouts in Germany, a lot of that was a negotiation. And I expect there will be negotiations happening here as well. Um, I do want to move on to our next story. And this is about Walmart, specifically Walmart Canada. They were uh, at the center of a significant amount of controversy this week. For after people found that uh, a T-shirt with the phrase "All Lives Matter" on it was for sale on the company's marketplace website. Now, the phrase "All Lives Matter" has been used to criticize and to diminish the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, if you want to learn more about why that phrase is offensive, uh, there are a ton of stories out there. I recommend Donovan Bennett's on Sportsnet.ca if you want to learn some more about that. But um, Walmart released a statement saying that it was going to review 
the sale of this item, as well as other ones that have the lives matter phrase in it. Um, a few hours ago, I checked and it looks like that item has been pulled from their website. Now we've discussed Walmart's marketplace website before and obviously a different context. Um, it's an Amazon style website where third party sellers can sell goods on it. But I think this does raise questions about uh, who has the ability to sell what kind of items on the site and what responsibility the companies that are offering this platform have to ensure that third-party vendors are not selling items that are offensive or things that you know Walmart wouldn't put in their shelves in their physical stores. Um, what do you think of the situation, Mark? There's a lot to unpack there. I think that we start with, um, I'll say, let's start by comparing the responsibility that a vendor of goods has to Facebook. There's a lot of controversy about uh, the fact that Facebook is not taking enough action to reduce the spread of hatred and misinformation through its platform. Mm -hmm. And Facebook has said, by the way, I happen to not agree, but we're not talking about that today. But just as a point of contrast, Facebook has said, listen, we're a platform and we are not speaking on behalf of all the people who are engaging on our platform. And therefore, it wouldn't be right for us to start to edit or uh, manage what they say. Walmart and Amazon do not have that choice. And the reason they don't have that choice is that for the consumer, they don't actually really know. I mean, they may know if you tell them, but they don't really know the difference between Walmart is selling me this good versus I'm going on this site to uh, mm -hmm. buy it. And there's a different transaction that's going on in the background, like who's doing the drop shipping and who's processing the payment. They don't care about that. And so in their mind, Walmart is selling them these goods, even though they may technically know that they're not. And so I believe that Walmart has, we'll talk, we can talk about the ethics separately and I have a view there, but I think from a business standpoint, I think they have to be very careful. And I think today, by the way, there'll be some downside to a certain segment of the population who wants to see all lives matter and blue lives matter. Uh, and I think they also uh, removed the Mississippi flag because it ha uh, the Mississippi flag includes some part of the Confederate flag. Um, but so they may offend some people there by removing it. Had it never been there in the first place, they wouldn't have offended them by removing it. It would just not have been there. But it's a hard position when you're already there because then you're making a statement one way or the other. And then you have to yeah, say... Yeah, and I also think another part of it, and we saw this, uh, part of the backlash was they Walmart had released a statement about addressing systemic racism. Ah. They had committed, you know, $100 million towards, I believe it's a Center for Racial Equity. And I think a lot of people felt that that fell, that statement fell flat when they saw that they were profiting off something that is trying to diminish the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's something we've discussed before that statements from corporations are great, um, but it, it does seem to be there's a need for it to have action behind it as well. Yes. Having said that, in this in this case, it's not really as disingenuous as it seems because it's not like the amount of profit they're making on those few goods is the same as the hundred million dollars that they're giving, right? And so it's more of a of an oversight and a poor judgment on this side versus what is probably a genuine intent on this side. Uh, but I think they have to make the decision they're making because the downside of keeping that up um, is is extreme. And, and by the way, I, I will say, you know, 
I think there's a difference between saying all lives matter today and two years ago. And the reason I say that is I think there were a lot of people who, when they first heard Black Lives Matter and some of the messaging came out that was anti-police. Uh, and for some reason, the way Black Lives Matter first came on the scene, there were people who sort of said, all, well, but all lives matter. And for whatever reason, until you actually are properly educated and sort of hear somebody with the right point of view and really get it, I would say you could be forgiven uh, for sort of saying, okay, well, all lives matter. But then you now hear some people sort of say, say, wait a second, all we're saying is black lives matter. We're not saying that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so exactly. today it's much, all I'm saying is that today there, there's no excuse. You know, there are plenty of places to get educated and consumers are educated. And the people who are left today saying all lives matter are on what I'm just going to say is the wrong side of the debate here. And so Walmart is taking the decision to be with the people on the right side for business and I hope ethical reasons. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's move on to another discussion. We've got lots of uh, topics here for our retail roundup. We haven't done this in quite some time, but there's lots going on. Uh, We saw GNC file for bankruptcy this week as well as uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Um, That is happening today. Chuck E. Cheese specifically, they've reopened nearly half of their locations. Um, It's the parent company of Chuck E. Cheese, so they also operate something called Peter Piper Pizza. Um, It's unclear how much business they are getting at this point. Um, But what I think is really interesting is this is a business model that's kind of sandwiched in between two areas that have been really hit hard. On the one side, it's a restaurant, but on the other, it's entertainment, specifically for kids. Um, so who knows at what point that is going to recover? Um, what do you make of, of their path forward now that they filed for bankruptcy? Well, I, I did notice, as you did, that they are making statements that they are keeping stores open, whereas other uh, bankruptcies, retail bankruptcies, sort of said this is an opportunity to clean house. Mm-hmm. And if we believe we have a chance of surviving, then it's going to have to be with fewer locations. I mean, I think your point about being restaurant and hospital and, and other entertainment is really important. Because you could actually survive as a restaurant in certain categories by getting some rent abatement, not having staff, and doing some takeout and delivery. Uh, but if the the whole this is an, a site based uh, restaurant, I'm not going to imagine that any people say the food at Chuck E. Cheese is so good, and that's why we're going back. They're going back because it's a tacky place to have a kids party, and that's kind of fun for some people, um, or terrifying for others. Yeah, that's very terrifying as we I'm discussed sure, before the show. I'm sure some people have had some very scary experiences there, and kids react funnily to mice and mascots. But um, so you know, people are not going to go there. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that GNC and Chuck E. Cheese uh, and other bankers we uh, we see in issues and Macy's. COVID is the uh, the thing that is pushing people over the edge. It is not the reason overall, because if they had a strong brand that they kept relevant, and if you think about competitors, if you think about Dave & Buster's, now Dave & Buster's for a slightly older age group, but if you think about how they've done to modernize, if you look at Rainforest Cafe, if you look at places that really do this well, I think you'd have to say, Chuck E. Cheese, you know what? You have to modernize. And so, yes, this is a hard time. But if you had been doing really well and making money uh, and, you know, building up cash and maybe even finding ways because your brand is so strong to engage with people online or having mm-hmm. some aspect, then maybe it wouldn't be quite as bad for you. It would still be bad, yeah. but it's more, okay, this is not going well. 
we're kind of, uh, you know, we're kind of at a point where it, it may not make sense to go forward. Our creditors probably see that. Okay, let, let, let's mm-hmm. start again. Yeah, as we've mentioned before, it seems like uh, for a lot of retailers that have been struggling, the pandemic has been kind of the accelerant that has really highlighted those issues that they had before and just made them so much more evident. Um, Before we move on to our next segment, I do want to quickly discuss Macy's because they have also uh, today announced they're going to cut 3,900 corporate and management positions in the U.S. as they try to save cash. I mean, we hear about lots of problems with department stores as well. What do you think? Is there a future here for Macy's or is is this more about the department store struggle? Have you walked through Macy's in the last two years? I have. And it's not fun. Like, like, and by the way, it was fun in 1986. It just hasn't changed since, right? And so you walk around these stores, you get goods that you could basically get everywhere else. They can't afford to have a lot of people serving you because it's not a super high end. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a sort of medium. It's like the Bay. Uh, It's not like Saks. It's not like Neiman Marcus. And so you don't have an amazing service experience. You don't have goods that uh, you can't get anywhere else. Uh, You have a cavernous site. And so there's lots of area. And you sort of know that even if they got a sweetheart deal uh, a long time ago, because they're anchor tenants in many malls, uh, you can't afford that going forward. And so you look at Macy's and you sort of say, you know, uh, like now is not the issue. The issue is everything that's happened. Now, by the way, we had a look. They have been profitable, more so than something like than Penny, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've not been profitable enough. There's not enough reason to say, "Wow, this is really going well. Let's keep it going," as opposed to this is not going well, and now this is the time. And any department store that is going to make it is going to come through with a smaller number of stores, a lower number of stores, and each store is going to be smaller because that's the way yeah. they manage it. They have something. And again, with all of these places, GNC, Chuck E. Cheese, Macy's, tell me why you're going there versus the competition. Tell me what you have that's special. And if you do, then go and size it appropriately. But in all of them, I think they Macy's is a size issue, but with all three of them, what I'm not sure what the true draw is. Okay. Yeah, a bit of a retail reckoning here. Um, okay. Thank you for your insights on that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, we're going to move over to our next segment here, where we're going to dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing and get your ideas for solutions um, and for the fix. So, Mark, we discussed this a little bit in our last episode about um, 
uh, a pricing and what businesses should be doing uh, in terms of pricing or even discounting to make up for the lost revenue that uh, they've lost out on through this coronavirus pandemic. Um, you mentioned on Tuesday that businesses should look at uh, raising prices in an artful way. What do you mean by that? Uh, can you just kind of explain what you meant there? Um, so what I mean is when you're raising prices, you want to find a way to do it in a way that's palatable to customers. And you don't just want to make sure they say, oh, well, you know, we used to charge you $12.99 for this and now we're charging $14.99. You may want to think about bundling things differently or forcing people to buy uh, items that they didn't buy. Uh, and it, with the raising prices, you may do it just by removing discounts or removing deals because it's, you know, customers can say, well, why did you raise the price? And I've talked about this in grocery. You know, it's not really going to go over well today if grocers are raising the price on butter when people know what they charge for butter. But if butter's not on special eight weeks a year in the flyer, they may not notice it. And even if they do, uh, they can just say, well, they haven't gouged me. They just decided not to put it on deal. So, yeah, and that was something actually uh, that all of the, on the conference calls over financial results at blah, blah, Metro, um, Empire, which operates OBs, they were all getting questions about discounting because it does seem like that's that's going to be one of the first things to go. Well, and it's tricky for them because they have to tell their shareholders they're making a lot of money on pricing and they have to tell their customers that they're not. So, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you have to also be artful in the way you discount. And there are different considerations because when you discount, you are setting an expectation for the future. And I don't think that you should be discounting to make up for lost volume uh, in the past, because what is past is past. What you should be discounting to do is make sure that you have the traffic and the volume that you need today. Now, in certain categories, so in apparel, I actually think you have to discount because you have to move through this season so that you're not stuck. And depending on what all the manufacturers are going to do, you're not stuck with you know inventory that's going to go mm -hmm. uh, obsolescent very quickly. But you have to be careful when you discount because you have to make sure that you're not setting the expectation that that is your new price. You know, like in my business, which is, you know, not a retail business, we sometimes for a new client uh, find a way to uh, do a project for a little less than we normally do because, you know, our, our belief is that once you work with us, once you're going to want to work with us again. And uh, that's generally held true. But what we always worry about is how transparent we make the discount because we want to make sure that we are not setting a price precedent. And so mm -hmm. it's important to do that in a B2B context, and it's important to do that in a B2C context. And I would say the opposite of some of the artful price increases can be applied to decreases. So uh, don't reduce the price on something, do a deal uh, and say, you know, if you buy this and this together. And today, one of the things that I see people doing is getting them to buy more. So getting a volume discount, you see this in services like uh, personal training, uh, and you sort of say, okay, well, here's a story. It's a hundred bucks an hour, but now if you just pre-buy the next five sessions, you're going to do it for 400 bucks. And so it's clear to the consumer that they can't continue to buy, uh, to buy it at $80 a, to a shot after this is over. And the other thing you're doing is you're generating cash. And so I would say, be careful about straight discounting and make, make sure the messaging is such that the consumer realizes that this is not the new normal. This is what you're mm -hmm. doing to give people an incentive to come into the store now or try the service, whatever, whatever your service is. Yeah, you don't want your clients to to be in for a shock <laughs> when you do start to re resume pricing to normal levels. Um, 
whenever we're past this pandemic. Um, okay, another topic, another major trend that we actually have seen ex- accelerate through this pandemic is e-commerce. Um, especially actually with grocers, they saw a demand triple when it comes to uh, online grocery shopping. So I want to get your advice on on how what companies should be doing in terms of investment in infrastructure. I think um, this week I wrote a story about Sobeys. They launched a new online grocery delivery service. And I mean, this has been in the work for about two years. But What's interesting about what they're doing is that they have a separate warehouse that is solely dedicated to their e-commerce business. Um, A lot of different places, you know, have shoppers that are walking through and fulfilling online orders while you're shopping for your own groceries right next to them, um, or I guess within two meters of them. Right. Um, But I I do think it's interesting that they have invested in this kind of uh, fulfillment center for it. So as you know, having e-commerce through the pandemic is one thing because we saw a lot of companies quickly put things together to make sure they had that. But what should your you know businesses and clients be doing looking at e-commerce investments going forward? The first thing they need to be doing is uh, evaluating to the extent they feel they can how much of the volume is going to be permanent. So uh, e-commerce in grocery before the pandemic was 1.67%. I mean, it may be 1.8, that's just the number, the latest number we found. Uh, During the pandemic, it probably rose to 12 or 15%. Don't assume that it's going to be 12 or 15% going forward because in grocery, they've not solved the e-commerce problem, right? So I I use it as an example. I'm happy you brought up the Sobeys thing. Those uh, people who are picking the orders, they cannot afford them. They cannot afford to charge somebody $8 to have a $200 grocery order delivered when they're making 20 points on it and uh, and pay the, the person who's picking additionally when they're not actually releasing square footage or other costs. And so if they're opening a distribution center, on the one hand, it's incremental because it's a, sorry, a distribution center they didn't have before. But on the other hand, over the longer term, they could imagine that some portion of their footprint is going to be done that way and they could release some retail fo- uh, square footage. The warehouse is cheaper and obviously the labor is cheaper. There's still some labor in there, but they have Ocado who's doing all the picking. So if you think about a small business and you translate that, you say, okay, well, if I have two or three stores, I'm not going to be opening a new distribution center, right? Uh, but you should be thinking about an efficient way to do e-commerce. And you should be thinking about how much of it is incremental business versus replacing your in-store business. Because if you're replacing your in-store business, and if it's lower margin, which it often is, especially if you're not going to close your store, right? And you're going to start shipping packages and you're going to pay for shipping because that's the norm in e-commerce. And that person used to come to your store and now is going to get it delivered. You've not increased your volume and you've added to shipping costs. Uh, and you have no way to recoup that. And so you have to be careful. You have to make sure that you have some view of how much of this volume uptick during during COVID is permanent, and then you have to understand the cost differences. So it's complicated, uh, and uh, like I say, I mean, look at the numbers and run the scenarios. Uh, The other thing I would say is if you're new to e-commerce, you in a way have an advantage because the book has been written on e-commerce 
broadly speaking. There are many people out there who could help you. They know how to do product selection. They know how to do mm-hmm. shipping. There, It's not rocket science. Now, of course, if you're in stage one, you just want to take what everybody else is doing and get to as good as you can and leverage the techniques you see elsewhere. Once you want to get to stage two and innovate, okay, you may do some some things that are a little bit different and differentiate. But for now, just get sort of what the best in breed is. It's available. Yeah. It's not that expensive. Uh, and again, think about the volume. And if you do run into an area where you have to make a big investment, make sure that you're doing it and doing the calculation based on a volume that you think is going to be sustainable in e-commerce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the big question to what kind of levels are we going to see? I think the assumption broadly is that some of it will stay, but For sure. but that it's not going to be as high as it obviously was even a few weeks ago. Um, before we wrap up, there's one more topic that I want to get to. Uh, last episode, we talked about the Canada-US relationship. Um, this week, I want to talk about China, um, because so many Canadian companies do depend on the supply chain. It's uh, in China. We saw that in the early days of the pandemic with uh, personal protective equipment. Canada has since, you know, created its own kind of made in Canada manufacturing supply chain for PPE. But there are still a lot of questions about about what companies are doing and, and, and how they deal with the supply chains in China. Some countries are trying to encourage more manufacturing to come back. Uh, Japan is one of those places. Um, but you can't change your supply chain overnight. It's really not that simple. Um, so when you look at Canadian businesses that are doing close dealings with China, I mean, how should those companies that are dependent on them manage that relationship today? So... I was reflecting on this, uh, preparing for the show. One of the things I think we've lost sight of in our society is that you can't have everything. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've gone to China and, and it's funny, we talked about Walmart because really Walmart helped us go to China in a big way. We go to China, we've been going to China for, you know, decades now to get cheap goods. Why do we think that we could get the benefit of cheap labor without the cost of cheap labor? So we go as as governments, we endorse our uh, free trade. And as individual businesses, we go around the world and source and we say, oh, I know, I'm going to go buy my goods in Bangladesh or in China or whatever. Uh, and I'm going to save on the on the on the labor component. That's great. And then when there's a human rights issue there or when there's an IP issue there or there's there's some there's some issue where their government is not acting like ours. We're like, Well, that's not fair. They don't have the same values as us. But it's like. Well, you cannot expect a, com- a country that has lower labor costs because that's the way their society works to not have other costs. And I think this is sort of, there's a sort of a wake up call where, where, you know, if you're doing business in China, and I agree with you, you cannot just change your supply chain on a dime. And despite all of the issues with China, they are cognizant of the fact that their economy still runs on consumerism in the West. And so I don't think that they are going to go too far in, in terms of putting up roadblocks and making it too hard to do business there. I mean, it's already hard to do business there in some ways. So as an individual business, if you haven't done business in China, you should consider other countries because one of the things that's unique about China in terms of its relationship with big, go- uh, big governments in the West, including ours, is that they actually have a lot of power. They're a low labor cost country, but they're a giant country with a lot of economic power and people want to sell to China as much as they want to buy from China. And so that provides them leverage when the political stuff happens. And small businesses are not at the table for the political stuff, but they have to sort of 
live with the with the benefits or the costs of that political issue. But when you go to other countries that are smaller, when you go to Vietnam, when you go to Bangladesh instead of going to India, when you go to other smaller countries to get the same labor cost advantages, and those countries don't have the same leverage over Canada or the U.S. in negotiations, you could imagine that you have, I would say, a little bit less risk in terms of those countries putting their foot down mm-hmm. on things because they don't have the leverage. But Yeah, well, I expect this will still be a topic, uh, given what we are seeing on the political side of things, um, with, with Canada and China's relationship being... Uh, as tumultuous as it is right now. But unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. That's all the time that we have for today. Mark, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, It was a great conversation. If you want to rewatch this episode or get uh, any of the economic news about related to the coronavirus pandemic, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada's website. That's it for this episode of Crisis Management. You can rewatch the show on our website or listen to our podcast. Check out Crisis Management on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.